Welcome to Documentary First, an inside look at a first-time filmmaker's journey. I'm your host, Josh Lindsay from the Movie Proposal Podcast. And with us is our first-time filmmaker, Christian Taylor. Hello, Josh Lindsay. Hello, Christian. You are not in the United States. Where are you? No, I am not. I am in a little town in the Netherlands, north of Arnhem, which a lot of people have heard of from A British Too Far. Um, and I'm in a little town called Appledorn. Yeah, that's where I am. That's very exciting. But in the United States, joining us as well is our trusty, dusty, research extraordinaire, button-pushing guy, Jason Rugg. Hey there. Hey Long there. T- I, I haven't been called a trusty, dusty, button-pushing guy in like a month. And I know it, just, it makes me feel all warm inside. I know. I love it when you call him that. It's so great because that is exactly what he is. <laughs> and you're, you're, uh, <clears throat> wait, I, I'm, go- I'm, I'm totally blanking. Are, are you, you're, are you in Carol Stream or Wheaton? Me? Yeah. I'm out in Aurora. <laughs> my, <special laughs> world. I, my, my brain is slowly catching up. Um, from the last few weeks, and uh, so you have to forgive me. I, I knew you're in Aurora. I, I I just picture you sitting in the Carol Stream uh, office, which no one's been there in what I don't know, a couple of years. But anyway, I, I went and rescued my toaster oven a couple of months ago. But that's that's oh. as close as I've been. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody, what they're talking about is we all used to work in uh, Jellyfish Labs office that was in, uh, Carroll Stream, Illinois, when, with Phil Vischer, when we were kind of doing, uh, Jellyfish Labs stuff. And this is the office that we're talking about. We used to record the Phil Vischer podcast, which became the Holy Post podcast, uh, in that office. So, uh, that's been, I mean, the Holy Post podcast has been going on about 10 years and then Josh's, um, movie proposal podcast was came next that was born out of there and then uh the documentary first podcast was born and we recorded there for a little while at the very beginning until everybody went virtual and now we're all in our own spaces so that's just a little bit of history of all of our you know connections and locations yeah i was trying to remember what the last episode we recorded in person was for for documentary first and i think that was the one where we had flavi and Tomas there I think think that was the last one we did and then like they sent the stay-at-home order like the day after or something so we all just that was the last time (laughs) that was the last time we were in the office that's exactly right I remember them being there and uh, interestingly enough this past week I have been with Tomas and Flavi again so last week Flavi was on the documentary first podcast and we were in a town um, called you I think it's Uden Uden and that was near the Market Garden landings. And then uh, this week, Toma was with me here in Appledorn. Both of them are going to be involved in the Brave Dutch. So we've been doing a lot of Brave Dutch this week. But uh, Josh, we're glad to have you back. You were gone for a couple of weeks. You were a little feeling a little bit under the weather. We're really happy that you feel better. So thanks for being back here. Thank you. Um, you mentioned the Brave Dutch. We want to we hear about that. But before we do, uh, any updates on the girl who wore freedom, Christian? Well, honestly, there's not a ton, but I will tell you uh, the updates that we have. So we are still getting a lot of people uh, finding it on Delta. So I'm receiving pictures and text messages and pictures and tweets 
And uh, it's just been great. People are giving Delta a shout out. They're letting us know how much they love it. Uh, so that's just super fun. That's at least one or two a day that I get. I love that. Uh, and then a funny story happened. I, I have been talking to Flow Plana lately because, of course, I was in Normandy and now I'm here. And he called us yesterday and told me that he had a friend who was a tour guide in Normandy and a group had come over and was meeting with the tour guide. And uh, they said that they had seen a movie on the plane when they came over uh, about Normandy called The Girl Who Wore Freedom. And they asked him if he knew a guide uh, in Normandy uh, that was in this movie. And his name was Flo Plana. He's like, yeah, his name is Flo Plana. He's another guide here. And about that time, Flo Plana drives up <laughs> and he waves to this guide. And he's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, you guys, that's Flo Plana. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, Flo experienced a little bit of, oh my gosh, you know, fan love. So that was really cool. Uh, and then uh, the only other thing to tell you guys is this past week, uh, amazingly enough, we've solidified a few of our upcoming events. So the L'Oreal event that I've been talking about uh, for the Veterans Day week did go virtual, but they took on a new partner and the new partner is the USO. And the head of the USO that's working on this project accidentally or like kismetly saw the, fil the film on Delta before we had our meeting about this. So she was just blown away. She was so passionate and she wants to find out how to get the girl who wore freedom involved in other things that the USO is doing. So that was super fortuitous. Uh, and I was very excited about that. I'm not exactly sure what the L'Oreal event is going to look like. Uh, so we're still working out those details. Uh, but a couple of other interesting things happened. The, uh, I had another meeting with the Fort Bragg Museum Enterprise. That museum is in Fayetteville, North Carolina. They are bringing in an exhibit that is a like a virtual D-Day exhibit that's on loan from Paris. They're bringing it into Fayetteville in that museum uh, and they're opening it at the end of October, 1st of November and they wanna have a big event. And so the Girl Who Wore Freedom is a companion event to this uh, museum uh, exhibit opening. And they're gonna have a, a night on the 13th, which is a cocktail hour and seeing the movie with adults. And then on Sunday morning, uh, they're gonna have, or Sunday afternoon, they're gonna have a family, more family-like event. So we'll show the film twice. It is going to be open to the public. And also they are talking about flying Danny and Flo over. So Danny would bring the dress and they would put it in a display case at the museum. And we would also bring in uh, about three World War II veterans, maybe C.O. Bauer and Bob Davini and Willie Kellerman, veterans that are in our film. So all that remained was to figure out another piece, which is getting Michelin involved as well as Delta. And so Michelin then has decided to host a reception at this event. So Michelin is now uh, involved with that. And so now I hope that Delta will be able to fly over Danny Flo and maybe even the veterans. So that is a super exciting development that we're really happy about. And uh, that will take place November 13 and 14. So a Saturday night and a Sunday night. Uh, be watching the Fort Bragg Museum social media. 
uh, for ticket information or watching our social media information. So that's cool. Uh, the other thing that happened is that we were accepted into the Tryon Film Festival. That's going to be on October 9th. That's in Tryon, North Carolina. Uh, I will have details about when that screening is, but I think it is on the 9th. Uh, I will not be able to be there. Unfortunately, I am hopeful that Bill Ebel will be. We shall see. Um, but we'll, we'll give more information about that upcoming. We were accepted into the American President's Film Festival, and we'll be putting more information up about that. That's coming up. And then uh, just a little side note about Grueling Glory. Grueling Glory is our little short that we did. It was a spinoff from The Girl Who Wore Freedom, written by our translator, Michelle Phoenix. And we've been entering it into film festivals and it was already accepted into the Berlin Shorts Film Festival. So that's super exciting. Uh, very happy about that. We've just really dipped our toe in the water for film festivals for that little short. So. So that was great. Um, and really, that's, yeah, that's the only news about the Girl Who Wore Freedom this week. I have a question because, so I've entered shorts into film festivals before. I've never entered a feature because I never made a feature. I'm curious, is there a different process? Is it easier? Is it more difficult? Are you finding anything about, is it, is it cheaper? Is it more expensive? What's, uh, what's, what's any differences you're finding between those two? Yeah, great question, uh, Jason. So there really is a big difference between entering a feature film into a film festival and a short uh, on many different levels. Number one, it is less expensive. Uh, number two, it is not as um, prestigious, let's say. Like, you know, the, the big exciting things at film festivals are typically the features, unless you go to a short film festival. And there are a lot of shorts film festivals. Um, at most of the other film festivals I've been at, they have a short category and there are awards for those shorts. So you can have best documentary short, best narrative short, uh, and a whole bunch of other things. When you apply for a film festival, um, you know, if you are a younger film festival, a younger filmmaker and you're films are not, um, you know, to a certain quality, you would want to submit to the film festivals that are like between two years old and five years old. Um, if you are a more experienced film festival or filmmaker, you would uh, want to apply to film festivals that are 10 years, you know, and older. And, you know, starting with the Academy Award qualifying ones, if you want to be considered, all that is still the same. You can win an Academy Award for a short, so you would still want to enter those film festivals that give those awards. And then my experience with shorts as I've been to film festivals was fascinating. People who go to film festivals love to attend the shorts because they're short. They are short. You can go in, you can watch one and shorts can be anywhere from, you know, one minute, one and a half minutes up to 30 minutes. Uh, and film festivals will break their short times out in different increments. Sometimes a short is only up to 15 minutes, let's say. Sometimes a short is considered up to 30 minutes. Um, film festivals have a differing approach to how they view feature films also. Sometimes a feature film is 50 minutes or greater. 
Sometimes it's 60 minutes or greater. And each film festival will specify that when you're applying for film festival. I really was pleasantly surprised by watching the shorts at a film festival. Uh, it, they're easily consumable. They are interesting. And what film festivals typically do is they will put them together in a block. So the block will be about an hour or so. Um, and another thing that they'll do is they'll put shorts before a feature. Um, that happened a lot with us. And they will try to pair up the short with your subject matter so that, you know, it kind of forces people, if they're going to watch The Girl Who Wore Freedom, you know, they're going to come early a little bit and they'll see a short, which they may not have watched otherwise. So I like it when they do that for sure. Uh, so any other questions? Did that help? No, that, that, that explains a lot. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. So that's it on the, uh, the Girl Who Wore Freedom slash grueling glory front uh, for now. No other updates. So you are overseas in the Netherlands, um, not for the Girl Who Wore Freedom. You are working on the Brave Dutch. Um, why don't you just do a quick reminder of what the Brave Dutch is and then just bring us up to speed what's happening with all that. Yeah, so just as a recap, um, I was doing a little bit of work on the Girl at War Freedom when I came over. I did stop in Normandy. I had all of my connections. I uh, did a little pre-advance work for showing the film next summer, June 5th, 2022. Uh, and then I headed to the, Nor uh, to the Netherlands and we did our first little section on Operation Market Garden. Just as a, a refresher, Operation Market Garden was September 17 and 18. And it was in the, um, you know, Eindhoven between um, really closer to Arnhem, but it started in Eindhoven, then Nijmegen, then Ar Arnhem. And if you never watched A Bridge Too Far, I highly recommend it. Arnhem was the bridge too far. And that was a failed operation that really drove the allies back. And it was, you know, the precursor to Battle of the Bulge. So the reason Battle of the Bulge was so bad was because Operation Market Garden failed. And I am here after that those ceremonies were over, I then turned my attention to the Brave Dutch story. Now the Brave Dutch story begins um, for my purposes on April 29, 1944. As you will know, that is pre-D-Day. So you need to think about this story before D-Day ever happens. And so just a little bit of history, the Germans invaded Poland in 1939. And then uh, the next thing that happened is they did begin to take over the Netherlands and they bombed Rotterdam because the Netherlands wanted to stay neutral. They did not want to get into the war. They were neutral in World War I. They wanted to be neutral in World War II. Hitler did not give them that option. They bombed the heck out of Rotterdam and said, if you don't surrender, we're gonna do that to your other big towns. And so the Netherlands did surrender um, in theory. But what happened is right before that, Queen Wilhelmina and all of the military leaders got out of there and went to England to set up a government uh, in exile there. And some people then stayed in the Netherlands to start this underground network. Um, and that happened, if I 
if I'm remembering my history correctly, I think that happened on May 10th, 1940. Uh, button pushing guy, you can research that, research the surrender of the Netherlands, but I think it's May 10th, 1944. So that means just like France, uh, because France was not that far behind, I think France was September of 1940. Um, the Netherlands then was occupied by the German forces. Jason, did you find out the answer? You were five days off. It was the 15th of May. The 15th of May. Thank you very much for that correction. Um, so, so anyway, the, what it means is that from the 15th of May, 1940, until the Southern part of Holland was liberated around September 44, all of Holland was occupied. And what I have learned is that occupation and that experience in Holland, in the Netherlands area, was dramatically different than what happened in Normandy. Couldn't be more different, really, on so many different levels. How the Germans handled it, how the people handled it, how it affected people's lives on a day-to-day -day basis. It was dramatically different. So on April 29, 1944, uh, a dear friend of our family's, John Lau, who's from Laurel, Mississippi, he was in the Air Force. He was in the 467th um, Bombardier or you know, Bomb Group. He was a substitute on this 467th B-24 Liberator. He was trained as a navigator, but for that day, the navigator was sick. And he was the, or the bombardier was sick, so he became a bombardier. They flew over to Berlin, dropped their payload, and were flying on the way back. They got hit, and a gas line was hit. They could have made it back to Rakheath Air Force Base in um, England, but because they lost so much fuel, they had to eject. So the major, so everyone on the plane jumped out. They all were scattered, kind of over a different range, and. When they jumped out and landed, they were not together. We have learned through, we, we made a partnership with a historian slash writer called Walter Nordman. He is Dutch and he became, he knew about this story from um, getting a copy of the, Dutch, the Brave Dutch that John Lau wrote from the Lau family. The Lau family gave them what John wrote in 1945, and Walter Nordman began researching this extensively. So all the things we've been tracking down here in the Netherlands have been thanks to Walter Nordman. So what we learned when John Lau bailed out of his airplane, his airplane continued on a trajectory and it split in two. And one half of the plane landed on a house um, and inside a girl was killed, a young 19-year-old girl was killed. We actually went to that house where she was killed. So we found the location of where the plane uh, landed. And then we sort of made our way back. Um, through coordinates, we've been able to find the general area where John Lau parachuted. He was hung in a tree, cut himself down out of the tree um, and began you know, hiding in the bushes because the Germans actually drove right by him and he could hear them and see them. And that began his adventure on June, I'm sorry, April 29, 1944, 
of hiding from the Germans to try to stay alive and get back home. His plan, he had heard about evacuation lines coming from Spain. So his goal was, and his hope was to get to Spain. In the first few days, uh, he ran into some foresters and some farmers who hid him and fed him in their haystacks. And ultimately he would meet one underground worker after another, and they would hide them in holes in the ground as well, you know, or in these haystacks. Ultimately, he was connected with the Narda group and Art Kleist and his family, and he was held in the home of Art Kleist in Appledorn for five months. He lived with his family, and he was eventually reunited with his pilot, Lieutenant Bill Moore, and they shared this home with his family. They wanted to get out right away, but they came in contact with a spy. This spy's name was Dingus Pratt, and he was from, he was half Dutch, half British, and he was trained as a, Dutch, as a British spy. He parachuted into Holland. He then was working on these escape and evasion routes with a Dutchman. So this Dutchman's name was, I think it's Yap Pillar, and they would work to, and maybe not Yap Pillar, maybe it was uh, Yap Van uh, Velway or something. I can't even say these Dutch names, unfortunately, but they worked together to get these evacuation lines set up so that when these pilots came down, they could get back to behind Allied lines. So Dick began telling Bill Moore and John Lyle that there really was no way that they could get out. Uh, they had had their picture taken for a fake ID card by Photo Joe. And Photo Joe was the guy in the area that did take a lot of pictures for these false ID cards. So they stayed in this house peeling a lot of potatoes. Uh, apparently that's what they did for hours a day. They peeled the potatoes for the families. And um, we, one of the things that we did, the very first things that we did when we got here is that we went to the Art Cleese home. And that was an incredible experience because we knew that John Lau and Bill Moore had lived in this home for five months and was taken care of by this family. In 2005, uh, John Lau's children all came and they actually met with Art Cleast and his brothers. And they were taken into that home by Art Cleast and showed where everything was. The man that had bought the home, his name was Ben Schmidt. And we hadn't seen him since, of course, Lucy hadn't seen him since 2005. We went and knocked on the door a lot this week and he let us in and he was so excited to show us and tell us everything about the house and where uh, things were hidden. Uh, they had this little tiny corridor that the guys could crawl in and they had created a breathing hole to the outside of the house. Uh, there were places in the eaves where they lived. It was just gripping to be in this house. Not much has changed at all. We were so happy to be well, so well received by the owner and he agreed to cooperate with us and let us film there or whatever. So that was great. And uh, from there, we then also learned that Photo Joe, along with uh, a British pilot and American pilot and some other resistance workers were executed and not far away. 
And so they have erected a monument to those resistors and the pilots. And we went to visit that memorial. Um, so, and that was right where they were executed. So that was very moving. Um, and then, um, you know, we just continued to, to kind of figure out this adventure. And we would follow John's footsteps one step after another. After he came down, he tried to figure out and confirm, was he really in Holland? And he saw a tiny schoolhouse. He peeked into the window and there were a map of Holland and he saw windmills, wooden shoes and tulips. So he like had a pretty good guess that he was in Holland. And we actually found the school uh, that's still standing there uh, in a little town called uh, I can't remember where it is at the moment, but it's not far from Appledore. So we went to that little schoolhouse and it was, again, the, the people there, we knocked on the door. I was pretty scared because it, there was like, I couldn't see anybody around the school. And so I had to go up and go inside the school. There was nobody right there inside the school. I had to open like a schoolroom door and I mean, it was so scary. I had to overcome my fear of like barging in on people or doing something wrong. But when I opened the door, there was a teacher in there. And when I told him what we were doing, he was so excited and told us all the history of the building and what was happening in 1944. So that was super cool. And then the next thing that we did is we really wanted to find uh, the house of Tinica Kroner. Tinica Kroner was a very famous resistance helper. Um, she helped right before Pegasus II. And if you don't know what Pegasus II is, I recommend you look it up. There were two operations called Pegasus I and Pegasus II. This, these were rescue operations that the British and the Canadians uh, did in order to get the failed market garden soldiers out of Holland, as well as some of the downed airmen that had been there for a while. Uh, Pegasus One worked well. Pegasus Two was a big failure. And our characters were involved in Pegasus Two, as I have since learned. So interestingly enough, and this was the most shocking part of this trip, it was completely unplanned. But we are working with a Dutch woman named Tulai van Manen. She was in the Dutch army for 20 years. She's now in the Dutch reserves and she uh, works as a civil servant as well with the Dutch army. And she is good friends with a man uh, who is, his name is Mark, and he's the field commander of Harskamp, which is a base in not far from Appledorn or um, Undelu. So he runs this base and she told me they're friends that he, that day that we were there, was doing a ceremony at that base because they had found a hideout that was there in 1944. So this is a current military base that is being used and they have a huge firing range. And in the middle of the firing range, they found this hut where soldiers and allied men were held. They had found the family. There are two brothers that made this hideout hole. Their names were the Scholl brothers, um, Klaus and Ant. And they had dug this hole 
and they the mark was doing they were unveiling a plaque to mark this hole completely separately from our visit but when they heard that lucy lao john's daughter was in town they invited us to be part of this ceremony so it was it was another one of those what i call a god moment that just came together and it just got better every moment so we got to this base john helveston lucy's husband lucy lau and i were then taken onto the base and we were picked up by this field commander named mark in his big military vehicle and as soon as we got started driving out to where the artillery fields were we heard all the shooting honestly it sounded like i was in 1944 and my imagination of course was on fire as I was thinking about everything that had happened on this base. Uh, this base called Harst Camp was built by the Dutch Army and it was built for their training facilities and field exercises. And in 1940, when uh, the Nazis invaded and the Dutch surrendered, the Germans then took over this base, obviously. And so what was so interesting about this Heidi Hole is that this base was under the occupation of the Germans from 1940 until 1945. So you say, how did this dugout get hid on this, hidden on this base? Well, interestingly enough, there was a forester. And in our story, it always seems like the foresters are the good guys. The foresters really um, work in this national forest uh, you know, group. And there was one that lived right on this base, and he was in charge of maintaining all the forestry stuff on that base. He had seven sons and three daughters. So in 1940, when the Nazis took over, he knew the perfect place to build a hideout. And he wanted to hide his seven sons because the Germans would do these things called Razis, where they would go places, round up all the young men and ship them off to German work camps. So this family found this big berm in this forest and they dug it out and they put wooden, you know, ceilings in there and they made it like a house. It was like a hobbit hole, honestly. And they put a door, you know, a wooden door that you could open and, you know, close with dirt and grass and trees they would replace all over it. So the family made that, the boys stayed there for a while, but after Market Garden, uh, they began putting parachutists and down airmen into this hole. I, I don't know exactly how many uh, people they hid, but what was fascinating is when we met the family that day, it was the children of the Scholl brothers, two Scholl brothers, class and aunt, who dug this hole. It was so powerful to be there. Because one of the men that was hidden in that hole was a man by the name of Coslet, and Coslet was John Lau's navigator on the B-24 Liberator. So their families were connected at least by that, you know, navigator in common. There was another man in there by the name of Carr, and he and John Lau at Pegasus II eventually connected as well. So John was connected to both of those airmen that were in that hideout. What an amazing idea to think about hiding 
downed airmen or underwater boys, as they're called, right underneath the nose of the Germans. It was incredible to think about the bravery of this family. The mother, the father, and the 10 children were all involved in these efforts to save people. Interestingly enough, when we met this family, we met um, you know, two men and a woman who were children of the Scholl brothers. They had just discovered a year earlier, a whole archive that their fathers had kept. Photographic evidence of every single thing they did. Art, or I'm sorry, aunt, the older brother, took pictures of Klaus doing everything, showing how they dug out the hole, showing how the door worked, showing how they covered up the hole so it couldn't be seen. They, the pictures show how they would deliver food. They would walk sometimes in the tracks of the Jeeps, or they would walk on the berms in the middle where there was the grass. They would take food four times a day. And so they took pictures of them taking food or wrapping it up in bundles. Uh, the daughters would do that as well. From their home where they prepared the food to where the hideout was, it was about a mile. So when you think about this family taking food back and forth to keep these guys alive, uh, it was just remarkable. Unfortunately, in December, right around Christmas time, uh, they, they also had a stove in there with a pipe so they could cook in there and it was vented. So they were making food and they had also come out of the hut, these uh, GIs to walk around and exercise their legs. At the same time, German sentries were driving through the camp and they stopped to relieve themselves. And one of them was standing by the truck smoking and he saw something moving in the woods and he began to see and smell the smoke. And right away, they discovered that hideout. So they rounded up everybody that was in that hideout and they took them as prisoners of war. However, Carr uh, escaped. Coslet, the one that was John Loud's navigator, ended up getting shipped off to a concentration camp. Carr escaped, which is how he ended up in Pegasus too with John Lau. And because the hideout was discovered, they were going to burn it down and to destroy it. But as the Germans took away the airmen, the Scholl brothers came in. The Germans had put a stick to mark that hidey hole. The Scholl brothers came in and moved the stick across the street. And the Germans never found the hidey hole. So it's still there to this day. So we were able to go there and see it. Uh, it was remarkable. We then went back to uh, the headquarters on this base and had a meeting between, you know, Lucy Lau and the Scholl family and me. And as we were looking through all of these documents, we found a book by Graham Warwick, who also was a part of this story with John Lau. And in this book, he talked about a guy named Jan, Jan, really in Dutch speak. And this Jan happened to be a Scholl brother as well. It was the older Scholl brother. And they had a picture of the older Scholl brother, which looked exactly like a picture that we had in our possession of John Lau. 
This picture of John Lau was taken on Christmas and his guide we now finally knew was John Scholl. So we made that connection again between the two families because the messenger that got John Lau to his next safe house was one of the uncles of those people standing in that room. It was a powerful moment because it only was discovered as all of us were in the room talking to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. We walked out of there and I just kept saying, this is why I love my job. This kind of detective work and bringing people together. It was just, nobody could believe that that had happened. The other interesting thing from a filmmaker perspective is the field commander, Mark, is so passionate about the story. He's going to take and digitize everything the, ha the family has and share it with us. I mean, that is a treasure trove of stuff that just was, you know, handed into our lap. And the amazing thing is that is photographic evidence of what the Dutch resistance did. And hardly any of that exists, as you can imagine. They didn't want to take pictures. They didn't want to write notes. They destroyed everything and they didn't want to talk about it. So the fact that we found this is absolutely stunning. So we left, we said goodbye. And that afternoon, we went to find Tinica Kroner's house, like I mentioned before, where John Lau and Graham Wark stayed after Pegasus II. Lucy Lau and her family, John Lau's kids, had been there in 2005, but they could never find the hole. They never talked to anyone. Well, we showed up where we knew Tinica Kroner's house was, and there was nobody there. So we walked around the place a little bit, trying to see if maybe we could see the hole and someone drove up. And of course, again, super scared, like, oh my gosh, are we gonna be in trouble? And it turns out the people were super friendly and it was a forester that was living in the home. And he was wearing all of his green uniform, just like John described the foresters in 1944. And he was so excited to show us where the hole was. And so he took us all the way into the back of his yard. And Lucy said, gosh, we never went back this far. You had to go through a gate. And as soon as we went to, through the gate, we saw the berm, just like we had just seen that morning that the Shoal brothers had built. It was exactly the same. And Lucy was just blown away. We all were because we realized that this was created just like the Scholl brothers had created the other one. And, you know, we were walking in the footsteps of her father. And we, of course, thanked the forester. We went back towards our car and they invited us to come into the house. And it was, I couldn't believe it. Neither could Lucy. We were walking in the house where her father had been you know, in 1945, I guess by this point. And, you know, they took us upstairs and into a hole where they would have hid. I asked the owner, have you ever been, you know, is there anything in there now? And he said, well, yeah, there's a big drum in there. And I said, what's in the drum? And he said, well, I've never opened it. And I was like, well, what are you waiting for? There's no time like right now to open that drum. What's in there? Um, 
So that was an incredible moment. The Forester agreed to play a Forester in our documentary. So that was great. Uh, and then they also agreed to let us film out there as well. So that was incredibly exciting. It was just a wonderful day. We made great relationships. We were able to take a lot of pictures. And then the next day, John and Lucy went home, but I continued to work with Joey Van Meesen, who is a Dutch guide. He works for Footsteps Researchers, who helps you know follow plan out the footsteps of GIs with Myra Miller and uh, Thomas Voisson. And Joey had plotted coordinates for all these places that John Lau had been after he left Tinica Kroner's house. And yesterday we went to four of those. And this is sort of the end journey of where John moved from location to location, trying to get back behind allied lines, the more Southern end of Holland where the Canadians were holding that down. And every house we went to, we, it's the same thing, the scary feeling of going up to the door and particularly in Holland, the Dutch people are very reserved people. They aren't necessarily known for being open. Uh, they're standoffish to a degree. And so it was super scary going up to these doors, knocking on these you know, doors and saying, you know, can not, I mean, we never really asked, can we go into your house? But we would tell them a little bit about our story and hope they were going to let us into our house. And every one of the people was so gracious and they did let us in and they showed us around. And I was able on behalf of these American families, thank them for you know, their service. And they did all agree to work with us um, in doing this documentary. I think the most powerful of those events yesterday uh, were that we went to a house in Sliedrich, uh, the Netherlands, it's on the western side near the Bishbosh area, which is a marshy type area. Think Florida marshlands. And we knocked on the door and this older woman in her 80s answered the door. And she was sort of standoffish and afraid at first. But once we explained why we were there, she's like, oh, come on in. I mean, her whole demeanor changed. She invited us in. And we came in and she ripped open a closet door. Like, I mean, we barely had time to, to, to ask her anything or say anything. She opened up this closet door. She went down underneath all the coats and she ripped out this little uh, carpet and threw it out of the closet. And she reached down and lifted up this big wooden trap door and just like pointed down with a big smiley face and like, you know, she didn't speak any English, but she was pointing down there. And Joey Van Meesen, who was young and agile, was able to go down into this hidey hole. And she said that is where the airmen were hidden down there. So we get able to see it, get video of it. It's exactly like it was back then. And then she showed us in the bathroom, there was a trap door in the ceiling of the bathroom where they also hid. I think she said they had 10... Um, you know, soldiers or airmen in that, you know, and it was sort of like the, it was, it was the last house before their trip to freedom. And so this home was beautiful. It was right on a busy street, right by a canal. You go into the house and out the back door, you can see this big glass window 
a garden and straight out on to the, I think it's the Delft River. I think that's the name of it. And so it's this big waterway with lots of tow boats and, you know, all different sorts of boats, sailboats and rowboats. I mean, just everything you can imagine going up and down uh, the river. And John Lau got there. They originally tried to leave through the back of the house. They weren't able to. So they came back, spent the night in this house. The next day they went out again, got in a boat and were ferried across to the other side through this swampy Bishbash area to meet up with the Canadian troops to freedom. And that was February 17th. And he was back in Paris on February 19th, 1945. He was with the Dutch people and they took care of him for 11 months and made sure to get him back behind allied lines. And during all of that, many people lost their lives. And it was an overwhelming burden. I think John Lyle carried knowing, you know, how many people had died for him. And I think he carried that all of his life. When he got back to Paris, he wrote this homage to the Dutch people and told everything that they did for him. And, you know, has always wanted to honor them on as much of a scale as he could. He then sent things back to the Dutch people after the war ended and they came to visit him in Mississippi. He went back to the Netherlands to thank people. He even named his daughter Tineke after Tineke Kroner. So it's a passionate story between these Dutch people and John Lau. And it's once I realized I could do the girl who wore freedom and it was successful, my mind turned immediately to the story of John Lau, which I've known my whole life and really hoped that I could tell this story and bring it to life. So being here in the Netherlands, I've heard about Appledorn for, I, for as long as I can remember being in this town and meeting the Dutch people myself. Uh, it's been hugely instrumental in figuring out how to tell the story, but it reminds me of the beginning of the girl who wore freedom where one clue would lead to another clue would lead to another person. And, you know, slowly but surely the story began to come together. And that's what began to happen this week. So as we wrap, wrap up, Christian, I mean, how do you want to tell the story? Because, um, you know, Girl War Freedom is a, you know, feature length film. <clears throat> I, it's my understanding you want to approach this differently. How, how do you want to tell the story of the brave Dutch? Yeah, so this is going to be right now a 10-part mini-series where each episode will be 42 minutes to 48 minutes. And we want to talk about the Brave Dutch, but John Lau is going to be the thread that weaves us through all of these different um, you know, characters that we meet and the ways that they help people get back to allied lines. And it's going to be very similar. It's going to follow a similar formula where we are going to have um, historians and we're going to have uh, artifacts and you know visuals of photos and uh, film, and then we'll talk to children of resistance workers, other family members. We'll you know visit museums or things like that, uh, and and have family members tell their own stories. So, one of the most challenging parts of this story is that in 1944 in June. The American military was filming everything and taking pictures of everything. And there's plenty of photographic evidence. 
it gets a lot more difficult here in Holland because the time period that we're talking about, the Germans were in control of. And so it's, and of course the resistance wasn't filming their activities other than of course, these photos we found from the Scholl brothers. So getting footage and archival material is going to be a challenge. Um, we'll probably have to access some German uh, archives, but what was great is we were, we visited the resistance museum uh, yesterday or day before yesterday. And the resistance museum did have a lot of footage and photos that we hope we can uh, access with a partnership with them. Another thing we did is we went to this uh, fort called Emmer's Fort, and it was a concentration camp where resistance workers were taken, tortured and killed, uh, as well as Jews. And uh, it was just a, an eerie, eerie place. But they also have some you know, photos and footage. And on uh, Thursday, well, tomorrow, I'm going to be going to the um, Graham Warwick barracks here in Appledorn. That is where Bill Moore was executed. So there was a night, um, you know, back in, I think it was late November, early, nah, probably October, where Bill Moore and John Lau were standing next to a fireplace talking about the events of the day. And the Nazis came in to check the house. John Lau went up the stairs to a secret compartment and Bill Moore went out a window to try to draw their attention. He was captured tortured and killed on December 2nd at this place called, you know, the, now it's the Graham Warwick Barracks. Uh, so we're going to go there tomorrow and talk with those historians and museum curators to see what kind of photographs and videos they have. And then the Orange Hotel uh, is going to be in The Hague. We're going to go there on Thursday. And it is the place where they had political prisoners and would torture them and question them and several others of our people in our story were kept at the Orange Hotel, which was definitely not a hotel. So hopefully in partnerships with these museums and things, we'll be able to get that archival material that we need. We've now got lots of connections with children of underground workers that can help us tell the story. And then the last piece that we're going to add are the reenactments, just like in The Girl Who Wore Freedom, where they're not spoken, but they're acting out the memories and things we can't tell. So I think that this film is going to have a lot more reenactment than The Girl Who Wore Freedom, because there's a lot less stuff to tell this story than we had with The Girl Who Wore Freedom. So thank you for asking that question. So, I mean, it's interesting now being this my second film, learning uh, from what I learned in The Girl Who Wore Freedom, I am doing things you know, differently this time and that kind of feels good, but uh, the process really is the same of discovering the story. So, and you know, maybe just to kind of cap this podcast off, I mean, obviously you're there to learn about the stories, you're meeting people, you're discovering new things, uh, but going into this trip, was that solely the purpose? Or do you have a, a goal in mind of <clears throat> finding investors, finding people who'd want to participate with you? I mean, like, what, what was the goal of this trip? This was absolutely the goal. The goal was to discover more stories, to um, make relationships here, partnerships here, figure out what the challenges are of filming here. It was totally exploratory. It's not even really pre-production. 
It's really exploratory research and stuff like that. Remember, we've been talking about um, Virgil Films and how Virgil Films is going to take this series and pitch it to Netflix or Amazon or any of the cable channels where we hope the funding will come from. What I have learned from the Girl Who Wore Freedom is I'm not going to proceed um, on my own dime. Now, this exploratory trip is my own dime, uh, but it's been very inexpensive because I've stayed with a lot of friends and um, it has not really been that expensive. So, uh, but I am paying for this part of it. And interestingly enough, I made a lot of mistakes in my thinking starting out on this trip because I've been to Europe so much now. I've been in Normandy for months at a time. I really didn't think about, I didn't think it was going to be that different coming to the Netherlands. And I could not have been more wrong. And I said this in the last podcast, I, there was a lot of difference between the ceremonies in Normandy and the ceremonies in the Netherlands. But it's also the people, the culture, and the way everything works. So my experience of the Netherlands, and this is the first time I've been here, and it won't surprise you, but it is extremely ordered, phenomenally ordered. All the buildings are ordered. All the trees are absolutely perfect. One of my favorite things is they make these trees, you guys, that are like, they have a tall stalk of a, you know, a tall trunk and they are flat. So they use forms to make these trees very flat so that they don't grow out and they put them up against their buildings which if they have a small yard, it makes them look pretty and designed and like they have trees, but the trees are very flat and easy to take care of. So uh, their ingenuity about how to use their space and use their homes is, is so creative. And I have been particularly surprised by the fact that it feels more American here in the architecture and in the way that they lay out their streets than it does any other European thing. So it's funny because I can see how uh, the Dutch people that came over to the United States, it seems like, I mean, I think that our architecture in a lot of places would have been designed by Dutch people. And so it's not too surprising that I think America reflects a little bit of this Dutch culture. I was surprised by the people of, of the Netherlands. Um, they are guarded. They are serious. They are not emotional. They don't really show their emotions at all. We even had Dutch people tell us that when we've gotten emotional about the story or their gratitude. Uh, one woman said, we appreciate you showing emotion. We feel it, but we never show it, is what she said. So um, that is what I've discerned. And they, I am going to have to be a lot more careful going forward with this story, I think, and in dealing with people. Um, in Normandy, everybody just is so ready to embrace Americans and the story. Here, I think the Dutch people are so humble. They don't talk about, they don't brag about, they keep everything silent. So it's very difficult to find, find out things about the World War II story. So, you know, they're just, there's just a lot of a lot of differences between uh, the Netherlands and France, and I'm glad just to be here for that. Because when I bring a team over, it's super important that you understand the culture and how to inter 
interrelate with the culture and how we need to be very respectful. When we, I'm in an Airbnb right now, and I would recommend anyone stay in this Airbnb. It is the most wonderful Airbnb I've ever been a part of. It's on a horse farm, which of course is my favorite. I wake up every morning and can nuzzle two horses out my door, as well as in the evening, I get to tell them good night. Uh, they have goats here that are adorable, but I was stunned when I got here at, and I think I said, I may have said this last week. I don't remember. I was stunned when I got here. You could eat off the floor of these barns. Like they are so immaculate. This place looks like it had been built and was perfectly clean and completely appointed with every little thing you could possibly need. Uh, I've never seen any Airbnb so clean. So that just is that that's exactly how the Dutch people are super clean, super organized, very respectable and respectful. And that alone was a good thing for me to learn. Um, and then there are the relationships with the museums and the people. You can't really find out about your story till you get boots on the ground and you start digging around and meeting people. And one one clue leads to the next clue leads to the next one. And so really story discovery, meeting people, making relationships and learning the culture was what this trip was all about. I still have two more weeks left and I would say it's already been hugely successful. So this week we have a, you know, a couple of other people to meet with, a couple of museums to see. On Friday night, I'm gonna be going to see the Soldier of Orange. And apparently this is a huge gigantic spectacle that tells the story of the resistance in a theater in the round where the theater moves around you as you're sitting in the middle. It has water, it has boats. I mean, I'm not gonna be able to understand a thing, but I will uh, be able to, to watch that and learn a little bit more about the resistance. And then the following week, uh, it's going to be a super fun adventure because I am going to be in the Bastogne area with Flo Plana and Thomas Boisson and Joey Neeson, some of the best guides in Europe, and they're going to take me around to find out about my great uncle's journey with the 84th Infantry Division. Uh, so, and I'll be with Helen Patton. So you can't really shake a stick at that. So uh, I'm just super thankful uh, to be here and can't wait to see what happens next. It's a lot. <laughs> There's a lot going on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what do you guys think, Jason? What are your thoughts? I've been, I know I've been talking too much, but... Uh, do you have any thoughts or questions? What's your first reaction? I'm just really excited to see how you're going to turn this into 10 episodes because there's a lot there. And I know that like, you know, in the girl of war freedom, you had a lot and you had to cut things down. And I know that you're going to have to do that with this story too. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's really interesting because like, I got to hear about the girl of war freedom before most anyone else on the planet because you came back and told the story. And so I feel like we're getting to do that again. So I'm excited to see what happens with this one and it's going to be a long journey. <laughs> oh yeah. But, it's going to be uh, a long journey. I mean, but, like, yeah. there's some differences already here. I've put some people on my team that are far more experienced than I am that, you know, know what they're doing. Uh, and, but then we have already written an outline. So I have a young screenwriter that came on to the girl who wore freedom. Uh, his name is Zach Callahan, and he has been working on this material and helping me develop an outline for the past, I would say, six to nine months. 
So the difference here is that I have a very clear outline of how we're going to tell the story. And we've been taking the Dutch characters and the American characters, and we've designed 10 episodes already around these characters. So I knew all that and had all that before I came here. So I've known specifically what I'm looking for while I'm here. And now I know I visually have uh, an idea of the locations. That was another thing that was great about being here is I couldn't visualize where all these things happened. And literally, I have been almost all over Holland from the north, south, east and west, going from town to town and figuring out things. And that was also great in itself because I learned the distances of different places and different towns. And now as a production person, I can figure out how challenging that's going to be for a big team to move around and film in each place. And so, so I think that that outline has been critical to uh, us knowing what we're doing. I didn't have that last time. And we also are going to hire a storyboard artist this time. So now that I've taken all of these pictures and now that we have these 10 episodes already outlined, we will then talk with a storyboard artist and we'll lay out what that's going to look like. And so those are some of the differences that I've put in place from the girl who wore freedom. And yes, the story is too big, but we've already boiled it down into tinier little pieces. So I learned, I'm learning. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for the update, Christian. You have two more weeks left. Is that right? Yep. This week, it's going to be more in the Netherlands. And the next week we're in Bestone. All right. Very exciting. Can't wait to hear more about it. Uh, anything you want to, Add before we wrap up? Well, um, I would say go visit the girl who freedom.com if you can. If you have never done that, go check it out. There is a shop there if you're ever interested in buying anything. Uh, if you're interested in grueling glory, I mentioned that in the beginning, you can go to gruelingglory.com. There will eventually be something at thebravedutch.com. We've got the website started, but nothing on it yet. So you can't go visit that. I would say go to Apple TV or iTunes if you haven't seen The Girl Who Wore Freedom and you know watch it, leave us a, a review on iTunes. And please send us any you know, questions that you have, any thoughts that you have. You can do that. Um, my email is Christian at normandystories.com. So you can do that at my email or I'm on Twitter at Christian's Voice. I'm on Facebook and of course on Instagram as well. So yeah, so that's about all I have to say for that. Awesome. Oh, well, hey everyone. I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. I do have one other thing. If you want a DVD of The Girl Who Wore Freedom, uh, email me and let me know, and uh, we'll we'll take it from there. All right. DVDs, that's still a thing. You can get one. Email Christian. All right. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, everyone. Uh, thanks for catching up with us and listening to Documentary First, where we believe everyone has a story to tell and you can be the one to tell it. Yes, you can. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to Documentary First. We really appreciate your partnership with us. We can't do any of this without you. So thank you so much for listening, for donating, and for following along on our journey. If you are able to make a donation this week, we would really appreciate it. We are supported by donors who give us $100 or less. So anything helps. 
Also, if you're able to share the news about the girl who wore freedom with your friends and family, please do that on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or email. And sign up for our newsletter at thegirlwhowarefreedom.com. Please go to thegirlwhowarefreedom.com slash donate to make a donation today.